This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Welcome to the Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, editorial director of The Fader. Each of Kevin Morby's albums has a keen sense of place. Take, for example, his 2019 album, Oh My God, which, with its anxieties and apocalypses, was set somewhere between Los Angeles, a space above the clouds, and hell itself. Or Sundowner, released in 2020, which produced a surreal facsimile of the American Midwest, in which Morby had been raised, and to which he'd recently returned. Morby, like the wild-eyed rock and folk icons he loves, needs to immerse himself in a place, real or imaginary, to capture its magic. And as his solo career has progressed, he's become increasingly adept at doing so. His new album, This Is A Photograph, is based in Memphis, Tennessee. Morby lived there while writing the project, wandering around the city streets by day and sleeping at the grand and melancholy Peabody Hotel each night. But, as it has been on every one of his albums to date, the city is a lens. Here he stares through it to inspect life and death and the passage of time, the types of weighty existential matters that might bury less careful and considered songwriters. A week before the album's release, I called Morby at his studio in Kansas City to talk about time, ghosts, and Memphis. First of all, congratulations on This Is A Photograph. We're not too far away from release now. This will be the third album in a row we've spoken on, and it's been sort of an interesting staggered process because I think you'd started, you, you were probably quite a long way into making this the last time we spoke. We spoke in, I think, around October 2020 was the last time we caught up, and you were a good, like, nine months into into making This Is A Photograph, I guess. Yeah, at that time, I would have had a lot of blueprints of songs. A lot of them got realized sort of, I think right after we would have spoke, when I went to Memphis, Tennessee, and kind of shacked up in a hotel there called the Peabody, and I did that sort of right after Sundowner came out. The thing about Sundowner and a lot of my records is that, you know, I had that in my back pocket for a long time. So when it had come out, those songs were already two years old or something. And it's nice to sort of get rid of that psychic weight. Though the songs were old, it's still, you know, you're talking about the songs and you're you're promoting the songs. So once it was out, it's when I felt like I could take a lot of these blueprints of songs and and take them to, you know, a time and space to sort of really just focus on on building those up. Before we get into Memphis, and I do want to dive into that, but I just want to go back to the very genesis of, of the album and the evening when you see this this photograph of your father, which seems like a very poignant moment. What was it about that photo in particular that jumped out at you? that night out of all the photos that you had earlier in that evening before finding the photograph i was getting ready to go on a european tour i was getting ready to leave for a while and so we're having this sort of family dinner at my sister's place and my dad fell ill and he fell over he had this this sort of this medical complication and he he kind of hit the floor out of nowhere he, he passed out he luckily ended up being okay but he had to be rushed to the hospital they didn't quite know what was going on at first 
and the you know the EMTs came and everything, and he was unconscious there on the floor for a moment. And later, after we had he had been released from the hospital, we sort of went back to to my parents' house, which is the house where I, I sort of spent my formative years. And for some reason, someone unearthed this box of photographs of old family photographs, and it was a lot of photos I'd never seen before, and it was sort of a lot of photos of my parents, you know, in in their early adulthood, um, where. You know, sometimes when you see photos of your parents before they met one another and they're, I don't know, they're, they're going to school dances or they're, they're going out and they're with other people, these, you know, these strangers, it's kind of this interesting thing. And it's always that it humanizes them in this way or reminds you, you know, of the lives that they lived before, you know, you were conceived. But anyways, there was this one photo of my dad that really stood out to me above all the rest in which he's, he's got his shirt off and he's. He's on, you know, he's in, 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 in a, a, seems like a backyard or a front yard of this house that we would have lived in in Lubbock, Texas. And that would have been the year that I was born. They were only there for this, this short year. And I was born during that time. And I just found the photo just very striking. You know, my dad earlier that evening when the EMTs had showed up, they had taken his shirt off to check the vitals. And then here he was sort of shirtless in, in you know, his, his young adulthood and I almost had this like AB visual of, you know, seeing just how time has changed my father. And it just felt very significant to me. And I think, you know, in that evening when my, when he passed out and I kind of had to rise to the occasion and I was the one sort of, you know, cradling my father on the floor, it felt for the first time, this very significant, almost like role reversal, you know? So I found it interesting that I was finding this photo of my dad when he was younger and I would have been a kid and he'd be sort of the one, you know, tending to me. And then here I was on this, on this night. And it just felt like, you know, I was sort of helping take care of my dad. Now it was an interesting thing. Yeah. I mean, the, the photograph of him, you know, beginning to start a family and start a life. And I guess you're not too far from that sort of stage. I mean, you can see yourself in your father. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things where you think, oh, my dad looks like a younger man here, but then you realize, yeah, oh, I'm, I'm actually the same I'm, I'm right there. And you also kind of understand, you know, when I think about, I'm 34 now, so that, that photo would be, you know, when I found it, it was two years ago, so I would have been around 32. So that photograph would be about 32 years old. And you, th you think, okay, if this photograph was taken the year that I was born, I kind of understand how quickly 32 years can pass. And another 32 years, I'll be the age that my father is now. And, you know, as you get older, you get a better in better grasp on time and just how quickly it goes and you know sort of its movement and how it shapes your life and how it can seem long at, at some points um but also just you know lightning fast you got that line on the title track where you say that time is undefeated the heavyweight champ how present was that in your mind before that evening it wasn't that present and i mean you know i've always written about death and some element of time you know, there's certain things that happen where you feel your mortality or the mortality of your loved ones. And this is one of those moments that, again, fortunately ended up being totally fine. But it, I don't know. It wasn't that present. You know, when my father passed out, it, he, he passed out pretty cold where he was standing one moment and then the next moment he's on the floor. And I remember thinking it seemed as if, you know, someone had sucker punched him, you know, he just sort of got knocked out. And the only other time you really see that of uh, someone going out that cold is is in a boxing ring or you know from boxing matches that i've i've i'm not a huge boxing fan or anything but it, as much as the next person i've i've seen the famous 
clips of, you know, whoever getting knocked out. And so it just kind of began this concept of time. And I think then when the pandemic hit and time was sort of frozen and elongated, I was really thinking a whole lot about time, you know, because it felt like we were existing in this sort of glue or something. We were all sort of stuck in this molasses suddenly and times and dates didn't really seem to matter and everything was sort of weightless. And the past became an interesting place for me to look back at as sort of an anchor, but it also felt like the past was existing beyond this dividing line. Like never in my adult life was there such a specific line in the sand where a, a before and after, you know, whereas now there's a before and after COVID-19. And when we were in the thick of it, I mean, you know, everyone I talked to, and I'm sure maybe you relate, it's when I think of 2020 and even 2021 for that matter, it's there's such weird years, you know, here in 2022, I'll, I'll want to say like, oh, you know, remember, uh, you know, 2019 still feels like it was last year in, in this strange way. So because of time, in in our reality getting sort of flipped on itself. I was thinking, yeah, I was thinking a lot about time. I had a lot of time to reflect. This is a photograph. A window to the past. Of your father on the front line. With no shirt on. Ready to take the world on. Beneath the West Texas sun. The year that you were born The year that you are now His wife behind the camera His daughter and his baby boy Got a glimmer in his eye See me say, this is what I miss after I die Sundowner, there's obviously friends who have passed away Like there are, there are ghosts on that record that you were quite actively trying to keep alive I think well, well that, that sounds too artificial but the you were allowing to come into the record and I suppose that's maybe a more elastic sort of treatment of time than than what you get on this is a photograph where you really feel your place within something even if it's not necessarily a negative thing you do feel that sense of I'm I'm at this state like this sort of inexorable march of time that you just can't beat yeah absolutely and I think too something I wanted to do with this record was make that celebratory i wanted it there to be an element of time is passing so we need to celebrate the time that we do have and and you know have gratitude for the time that we do have whereas i feel on past records it's been a little bit more finite or definitive of you know i'm speaking about death we are all going to die and it, how sad is that and on here there's definitely elements of of ghosts and of death but it's it's more in you know honoring the dead or celebrating the dead and then celebrating the you know the time that we do have and uh, Again, writing this during the pandemic, a lot of that, I was writing almost like the mile marker I was looking at ahead is, you know, someday the world will come back and I will be able to be back on a stage and be able to tour. And so I want to create music that sonically and lyrically is going to feel fun, fulfilling to play in a room full of people when we're allowed to do that again. I think the, the way that you talk about time on this record and the way that you're talking about it now i think it's something we all think about and it's something that we all have to confront but i think like instinctively certainly in in like western culture we like our instinct is to not look at it too closely for too long mostly because it's really scary i mean you're turning it into something celebratory but it 
instinctively we want to look away when that happens. Did it feel uncomfortable, at least at first, to focus on the passing of time and on just the concept of mortality, even if, as you say, like everything, thank God, was fine this time, but like that just the scary nature of, of things never really being static. But that, that must have felt a little uncomfortable. It's a little uncomfortable, but I always describe my songwriting process as very therapeutic. It's something that oftentimes I don't know what I'm I'm going to set out to write about or I don't know what the song's going to be until I'm halfway through it. A lot of times I'm I'm it's not until I'm doing a press cycle of a record where I'm like, "Oh, that's what I was that's what I'm saying on that song," you know? And I kind of figure these things out later. So it really does feel like things that are coming to the surface in a therapeutic way. It's just another form of talk therapy in a way, writing songs, you know, of of discussing things that that are just again sort of rising to the surface or that seem sort of scary or that need to come out, you know, in some way, shape or form. And so I know it sounds a little cheesy to say, but oftentimes I don't exactly choose what I'm going to write about. Like it's, it's in there and then, and then it makes itself known and it, it comes out. But with that said, once I understand what the song's about and I'm consciously diving deeper into the, the theme of it or whatever, I, I like to get close to the source. You know, I like to fly close to the sun. If something is, is scary or terrifying to me, I like to sort of look it in the face and that's how it becomes less scary to me. So these concepts of time and, and death passing were on my mind and they, they, it was, you know, a scary time in history for, for everybody. So, you know, my way of working that out was, was writing songs about it. Did you know that you wanted this to be an immersive experience somewhere? Some, cause you, there is always a, a, quite a strong sense of, of place. And we've talked about this a lot in like when we've spoken in the past, but your albums have been whether that's been above the clouds, whether it's been the American Midwest, whether it's been California on fire, there's always been a, a strong sense of geographical location on your records. Had it not been for Memphis, would you have still tried to locate yourself somewhere to write it outside of Kansas City? Memphis ended up being the place because it could have only been there. I, I don't know if I could, could have found a place to be as an inspiring of a backdrop to the themes I was trying to convey. And it's not something where Memphis made me realize or think of all these themes but when i had these themes in mind it was a feeling of i know the perfect place to help tell this story or to amplify the story and you know memphis is such an amazing incredible city you know i describe it as a place that does such an amazing job at honoring its past but not in any sort of sticky way or obnoxious way it's in a very tasteful sort of remembering and honoring and displaying the past so we don't forget it. And that helps you in the present to to sort of move forward. And I think that's a thing that sort of a lot of America lacks. And again, in this time of feeling so stagnant because of the virus and being home and off the road and everything felt super uncertain, I felt I needed to go somewhere that wasn't my home. You know, again, I I had just written this record sundowner and that took place here and i felt i explored a lot of themes and a lot of inspiration here that i i, I was ready to move on to a new place and being pent up here all pandemic and you know i'm so used to traveling i knew i had to go somewhere in a lot of ways going to memphis it almost felt like i was emulating tour because you know i was living out of this hotel and i would wake up every day and i would kind of drive around all day essentially you know going to to different places, exploring different corners of the city. So in, in a way, I feel like I was scratching the itch of tour, but at the same time, I was doing something so radically different from tour, how my life usually works. And I've never written an album 
where it's been such an immersive experience and where I've sort of gone to a place to sort of live inside the songs and really explore the songs. And I wasn't working against any clock. You know, usually when I write records, it's okay, I've got two weeks in between tours and I'm going to book some studio time or I'm going to demo stuff and then, you know, get the ball rolling. But this was, you know, I had all the time in the world to sit with different lyrics or different pieces of music and think about things I've never thought about before, like changing tempos for songs or changing uh, the, the key of the song or whatever it, it was. I was really just able to live inside of, of, of the songs in a way I've never done before. You mentioned it a little before, but the, the Peabody Hotel, why there? Did you know about it long before? Did you have an image of it when you thought Memphis, you were going to go there? My whole introduction to Memphis was around the end of 2018. My girlfriend and I went to see her family in Birmingham, Alabama, which is about three or four hours from Memphis. We were driving back. It was late at night, and she suggested that we stop at this hotel that she used to stay at a lot as a kid called the Peabody in downtown Memphis. And it just sort of occurred to me in that moment, like when she mentioned us stopping in Memphis, I was like, wow, Memphis, you know, I never, why have I never really been here? Why have, you know, why don't my tours come through here? And it's got such a rich musical history. It's funny that it's not more of a place or more people don't talk about it. And then we ended up staying at this hotel and we were really only there for a couple of hours because we kind of got there late at night and left in the morning. But it made such an impression on me that I told my booking agent, you know, book me a show in Memphis, you know? And so in on the Oh My God tours, I was doing this sort of duo tour where it's just me and a sax player, my, my friend Kochimea. And uh, I had my booking agent book me this really cool stop there. And we played at a place called the Crosstown Concourse. And it, it's this sort of, it's like a, a million square foot, huge building that used to be an old Sears distribution center. And they've turned it into this sort of multifaceted cultural I, I I don't know. Like, there's a high school in it. There's a YMCA in it. There's a ton of restaurants. There's this listening lab with John King, who started Ardent Records, his whole old collection. And then anyone has access to it. There's amazing studio that Matt Ross Spang has. And just, I've never ever seen anything like it in America. And it just sort of blew my mind. And from there, everything was just kind of pointing towards Memphis. And I don't know, because of the having stayed at the Peabody that 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 first time, it just kind of became my landmark of the place. You know, it's like a sort of baby bird effect. It was like, you know, when a baby bird is hatched and it sees whatever it sees first, it thinks it's it's, it's guardian, it's mother. So the Peabody was just kind of that. It just became my sort of focal point and how I'd get my bearings there. What's it like inside? Paint, paint me a picture. I describe it as the, the Plaza Hotel of the South. And, you know, it has such a history. You can't read like an Elvis uh, biography without reading about it. They used to have, Sam Phillips used to have a radio station that broadcast out of there. There's this whole duck theme. It's, it's the, you know, the, the Peabody's mascot and emblem is, is a duck. And there's these ducks that live on the rooftop in the, this sort of duck palace. And then every morning at 10 AM, this duck master, this, this guy in this, um, sort of, uh, like red and black tuxedo takes them down through the elevator. And then there's a, this procession of the ducks where he walks them to this, this grand fountain. So it's this sort of bombastic and um, funny place. Um, I, I feel like it's probably last updated in the 90s. Everything feels like 90s nice, which is a little dated, but kind of in this comforting way, especially as someone who grew up in the 90s. But, um, you know, it's just, it's it's got such a presence. It's got this big neon sign that says the Peabody. It looks really cool. You can kind of see it again from anywhere in the city. And it's kind of this good way of, of getting your bearings. And I describe it as, yeah, like the Plaza Hotel of the South. 
And being there is kind of, you know, when, when I got my room there because of the length of my stay and because of, uh, they had so much vacancy because of, of COVID they upgraded me to this huge suite. So I had this big suite and it felt kind of comical. And I set up a recording rig in there and it felt like Kevin McAllister, you know, home alone lost in New York. It, it, it was sort of like, almost like I owned the place or something. It was really funny. There's an atmosphere on this is a photograph that I think is distinct from certainly distinct from Sundown and distinct from from all of your albums, but there is still this mid-century atmosphere, this sense of you trying to commune with a certain era and maybe a certain group of people. Who was it specifically that you were trying? Were, were there people that you were trying to, or a time that you were trying to channel? I, I usually try to refrain from becoming too nostalgic, and I want to be a person who ages gracefully and i think in order to do that you really have to embrace the future and the pre in in the present and you need to not completely resist new trends or new technology or whatever it is and so i of course love past eras and i think yeah i think there's a balance to looking forward and and trying to to have the future in mind but also you can be fascinated with the past but never dive too deep in it and I almost felt like this was going against my own rule. But again, the present at the time felt so uninspiring that I I really took great comfort in the past. And it just became this place that was fun and comforting and a sort of safe place for me to mentally go to. And, you know, the thing about Memphis, there's so many eras. And again, you know, the past is very complicated. All eras of humanity are incredibly com complicated because of race and gender and politics and you know, just everything. But because we were in a sort of unprecedented time, it was fun for me to to touch on a, a somewhat recent past. And, you know, in Memphis, I was becoming obsessed with the story of Jeff Buckley and, you know, uh, anything Stax Records re related, Otis Redding or Tina Turner, or, you know, Isaac Hayes and Big Star, you know. So I just really anything, you know, and that's a city where every corner of it, there's some reminder of the past, but in a really amazing way, like at the Memphis Zoo. So Jeff Buckley, right before he tragically drowned in the Mississippi River, he had been trying to get a volunteer shift in the butterfly garden at the Memphis Zoo, which is so peculiar, but I, I found it so interesting. And so there's this plaque dedicated to him in the Memphis Zoo. And that's just a great example of kind of everywhere you look there, there's there's some you know, other touchstone of, uh, of someone who's passed through that, that city. And it does such a, a great job at sort of uh, remembering those people. You've talked elsewhere about there being a sort of resilience and a strength to Memphis that you wanted to capture. What is it about this strength and resilience of Memphis that draws you to it in the context of this as a photograph? What, what, what is it about Memphis's sensibility that you think matches this album? Well, you know, I always felt that there's a, a toughness, there's a sort of like muscle to 
Memphis. And when I speak of its resilience, I just think, you know, it's such an odd small city to have someone like Elvis come out of it or, you know, Beale Street's significance of Robert Johnson and the blues musicians. Like all it's, it's a place where its influence is so culturally important, but it's this small Southern city, like in the corner of Tennessee. It's so wild. It's where, you know, obviously MLK was assassinated and he was there for the sanitation strike. And, you know, obviously he's at the Lorraine Motel when he was shot and that's all still there. And it's captured so well. And that civil rights museum is so incredible. And, you know, the story of his assassination is Memphis was this sort of thriving downtown up until that point. When that happened, it's downtown kind of died and, you know, it's economy really plummeted and it's just been through a lot. So I was trying to capture this this sort of Memphis energy on the record. And it's eventually why Sam and I went back there to finish the album. But it was more so when I was there writing, it felt like a comforting place to be because it feels like a very brave place. It feels like a city that has seen a lot. So though it was an unprecedented time, it still felt like, well, you know, we can handle this. We've We've been through a lot. And, you know, this is just another thing we have to get through. And we will get through it. And th that's just sort of the the energy. You know, it's a very hospitable place. The hospitality of the strangers you meet there, it's, it's incredible. And so it's a very comforting place. But yeah, I was trying to get get it on the record and, you know, a certain energy. There's I, I really love humidity. I grew up in a lot of humidity in Kansas City, but in the South, it's, you know, five times more intense. It's almost, you know, when we went to record there and to finish the record there, it was in August, it was super hot. And I almost like to think the way I visualize it is like, we just got this like really thick humidity on onto the album. And I, I wanted the record to sound tough for whatever that's worth, for whatever that means. And Memphis is a tough place. And I, yeah, I, th I think, I think we got it on there in our ways. It's interesting hearing you say tough, because I think it would be so easy as a rock musician to equate toughness with something quite sort of tawdry and straightforward and macho like unnecessary just sort of bravado but that's not what this album is i mean it would be weird if if that was the direction you took but it like i'm thinking about like like stop before i cry for example i mean i think that that might be a song that sums up this this concept of i don't know i mean tell me if i'm wrong but this idea of like resilience but also hypersensitivity like vulnerability as well that doesn't necessarily just mean toughness in the sense of a thick skin sure yeah i like that way of looking at it and you know when i say tough like there's this element to memphis where when it comes to mind i think of like an old tough cool car or you know again like the heat you're just out in like a sort of sweltering heat and the fidelity of the music that it's produced like everything about memphis is very raw it's very in your face and whether it's a big star record or a robert johnson recording or an, an elvis recording or a jay retard record you know it's it's all got this sort of rawness the fat has been trimmed no bullshit again for lack of a better word toughness but i also like looking at it like that like what you're saying you know i was talking the other day with my label and um my, my buddy phil who works at the label had mentioned something where he's like you know i think on this record you just let everything sort of be exposed you know and stop before i cry is a great example of it's a vulnerable song and i'm i'm saying katie's name it's about katie my girlfriend katie and it's a record in which i just sort of i fly all the flags you know i i don't hide anything it's again i think because of all these elements of time and thinking about how you know we only have a finite amount of time. 
I wanted to say exactly what I wanted to say. And I didn't want to hide behind anything. And because I was writing it during the pandemic and it almost felt like it would never come out or something, or I was just, you know, so I would do things that were perhaps more von vulnerable than I would ever do in my writing before. But then as the world started to open up and I made this record, it was like, oh, I'm releasing this very vulnerable sort of exposed album out into the world. And so I, yeah, I definitely hear what you're saying with that. I think there is a vulnerability to these things and just how naked it is. Oh, remember when we met, how you were so young, you were still sucking on a bottle, like it was sucking on God's thumb. But from stage you would take flight, and whistle like a songbird, while swaying in a blue dress, you turn the crowd into a big mess. I think we discussed this on Sundowner, but the sheer amount of time between the genesis of this album, but also the, the writing of it and the recording of it to the present day. And we, we've lived through, as you say, I mean, we, the, there was, there's actually for the first time in many people's lives, like a clear demarcation between two periods. There is the pre-plague time and now this sort of mid-period, well, we're at whatever we are in now, this liminal space. To some extent, we're very different people. And yet you've got this, you've got this document of, of, of a place that you were in, you know, the writing process, the lyric, the lyric writing process was probably about two years ago. How does your relationship change with the album in that time as you're obviously you're having to deal, there's a lot of just like bureaucracy to go through when you're releasing an album on a, on a record label, but how do you listen back to it? How does your relationship with these songs change in that time? You know, you go through on every record cycle, this strange period where, you know, you exist in your own little magical world while you're writing and, and capturing an album. And then as you start to dole it out and then eventually release the whole thing, it really does feel like you're giving away a big part of yourself. And I've always felt with my music that, you know, people ask you, do you ever listen to your own music? And I, I, my response is always the same, which is I can only listen to it until it's released. And before it's released, I listen to it constantly. And then the moment it's sort of out in the world, it sort of belongs to everyone else. And it feels kind of strange to listen to, you know, it's, it's no longer for, for my ears, it's for anyone who wants to listen's ears. And so that's definitely something you go through on every album process. But with this one, it feels a lot different. And, you know, knock on wood, we're never back in a situation like we were in 2020, where, you know, there was a lockdown of that nature. But looking back at that time, as horrible as it was, of course, there was a lot of silver linings in, you know, I think we all learned how to maybe take a better care of ourselves or for a lot of musicians that I know, and certainly myself included, it was the first time I was sort of resting or taking care of myself in a way that I hadn't because of the lifestyle. This record is absolutely going to have a very special place in my catalog to me personally, just because it's the only record I've ever really taken this amount of time or proper care to create. And, you know, the reality of it, the situation when I was in Memphis and, and living out of the hotel, I had a lot of doubts and I was I was scared because of the virus and I felt 
is this irresponsible to be, you know, this pre-vaccine and is this irresponsible for me to be out in the world like this? I'm living in a hotel. I'm subjected to other people. I had fears of just, you know, whatever, waking up super sick one day and not being able to get home. All of those things were very real. It wasn't just this blissful time, but luckily, you know, I wasn't met with any real tragedy. And so looking back on it is just kind of this nice, somber, alone, but not lonely part of my life. And so now here we are in this strange era where we've, the world has opened back up, but still the pa pandemic is present. Letting go of the record is bittersweet, but I'm also very excited about this one. In a way, I've never been excited about a record before. You know, up until now, I always have a record in my back pocket. And at this point in the record cycle, when I'm doing press and I'm getting ready to go out on tour and promote the record, I'm already thinking about a whole new batch of songs or even sitting with a whole new completed record. This is the first time, despite the fact that I do have some new songs formulating and I've been, you know, a, a few demos here and there. I'm not giving those songs too much attention. I'm giving them just enough attention to capture them if they're coming, but I'm really trying to focus on this album and give it the, you know, give it the the love and care that I think it deserves because I I worked so hard on it. And that feels good to do sort of for the first time, to not be looking too far ahead and kind of focusing on what I have in front of me. Do you think that's what you'll do from from now on is is really take this sort of time over over every album? I think so. This this is working for me in a way. And not that the other albums didn't work for me. You know, I just think that you take life as it comes and you always go with your instincts at the time and whatever they may be. And before this is a photograph and before COVID-19, my instincts told me to do a different thing. And I think that there's no matter what you're doing, change is when it feels welcome, you know, you should you should go with that. So who knows if this will become what I do for all my next records, but I, I kind of think for the, you know, at least the next one, I think taking time and carving out time for myself is something I want to do. You know, you can't always rely on a pandemic hitting, hitting the world to make you stop and take more time and interest in your endeavors. So I'm going to have to learn to do that myself a little bit more, but yeah, I really enjoyed this process. It was great. It feels like a beautiful place for us to, to wrap Kevin. Cool. Thank you so much for making time for me. Like every time. I really appreciate it. You as well. I really, I also really appreciate it. That was Kevin Morby talking to The Fader. Morby's new album, This Is A Photograph, is out tomorrow, May 13, via Dead Oceans. This week's episode of The Fader interview was engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Loughton Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you've enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. If you like listening to The Fader, good news. We're now on the new live radio app, AMP. You can download it from the App Store and check out our shows with the access code FADER on AMP. That's all one word. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.